Good. All right. Well, so a few weeks ago, I found an article posted on Twitter by Christianity Today that I was really interested in reading. It was about a ministry that for a long time I've wanted to learn more about, but I never had the opportunity. So I felt it would be good for me to learn both for myself personally and for others pastorally. And, and that just happened to be the special focus of this article. So I didn't have time at that moment, so I made sure to email it to myself for a later time during the week. And throughout that week, it would come to mind and I would think, man, I can't wait for some moment when I can actually sit down and read that. And I think part of the reason I was so looking forward to it was it was during that time when Zoe was really struggling with sleep. And so I just wanted that moment of unplugging and and relaxing and I was just really looking forward to sitting down and reading this article. Later on that week, the night finally arrived. Zoe went down beautifully. She was fast asleep. The lights downstairs were soft and dim. I grabbed a LaCroix, or probably a La Vie from Aldi, and put up my feet on the couch. If I remember right, Lisa was even baking cookies. The smell was wafting through the living room and the the melty goodness from the oven to my mouth just moments away. It's like everything came together. Everything was turning up weast. So I quickly, I quickly found the link in my inbox, pulled up the article and began reading. I read the first paragraph and it did not disappoint. This is what I was hoping to learn. I was locked in. It was so good. I read the second paragraph and then, and then the words faded and the screen said, sign in to continue reading. Subscription required. Wait, what? That had never happened to me before with Christianity Today, but I guess this was like a featured article. So for a while I did what any other person would do. I just sat there clicking the screen. But eventually I gave up. I did not have further access. My ability to engage with this article was restricted. It was blocked. I only got 5%. I was so disappointed. But that was just an article. In the end, it's no big deal, but I think it's a picture of a much bigger deal. I believe this same dynamic often plays out in our relationship with God. It's about full access. And the problem is not that we don't have full access to God. We can be sure that by faith in Christ, everyone who believes has full access to God at all times. But the problem is that sometimes... We treat God as if He does not have full access to us. Let me be clear. God is not waiting for us to give Him information, like sitting on the edge of His seat. He knows every last detail of our lives, but He wants us to share every last detail of our lives with Him, to bring it all before Him, because in so doing, we open ourselves up to how He is at work 
in every last detail of our lives. But sometimes, like this article, we only share the 5% of what's going on on the inside. There's different ways this happens. It, it happens when we know the right things to say in church or even in prayer, but our hearts are not behind it. It happens when our relationship with God kind of collapses into just routine, another duty or a chore to keep up. It happens when we treat God as disconnected from every other part of our lives. In other words, it's when we compartmentalize our relationship with God. It's like, here is God, and here is everything else. And so we relate to God on Sunday mornings, and maybe even isolated times during the weekdays, but we treat everything else in our lives as unrelated to Him, unaffected by His presence. In essence, we share with God only the 5%. When we speak to him about a li limited number of surface level things or rote things or, or things we think we should say to play the religious part. But not everything else that is going on in our hearts and our lives. The daily stuff. And I don't know about you, but I think it's easy to slip into this. I feel that gravitational pull myself. And it, it leads to a relationship with God that is increasingly flat and dry and isolated. So we need to be continually reminded of what a relationship with God looks like where we don't just share the 5%, but full access by His grace and power to grow in a relationship with Him that is increasingly deep and vibrant and full of life. That is what God calls us to. And that is the overarching purpose of our series through the Psalms and Proverbs this summer. We learn from God through the Psalms and Proverbs what it means to bring everything, all of it, our daily lives before Him. And we already introduced this series a few weeks ago, but we need to keep reminding ourselves of this overall purpose because otherwise it might just seem like we're going through like a random number of psalms sprinkled here and there that aren't really related to one another. And while they can stand alone, we need to see that there is a common purpose behind them all to grow in what it means to fully relate to God with all of our lives and all of our hearts. The psalms and the Proverbs show us what it looks like to bring before God all that's going on. They bring before God everything. Feelings of distress and danger, desperation over seemingly impossible situations without God, the highest joys of life, but also the many sorrows. There are times of quiet peace, but also times of conflict and hostility, even betrayal. There are fears and worries and struggling with the sense that God seems far off when He's not. And there are cries for help for those who are suffering and cries against injustice and oppression. There are pleas for wisdom and guidance and crucial decisions. There is temptation and victory, brokenheartedness and healing. All these things and more, the stuff of everyday life, are brought before the Lord in the Psalms and the Proverbs. And it's not that we just bring them before God and that's that. It means... To commune with God about these things until He shapes our thinking and our feeling 
and our speaking and our behaving towards all these different areas of our lives. So today's psalm revolves around one area of our lives in particular that we have to continually bring before the Lord. It's about an area of our lives that we are all faced with over and over again. And that is our wrongdoing, our sin. That is something that we have to bring before the Lord. But if we're honest, we might admit that we don't like to admit when we're wrong. This is the tendency of our fallen condition. In fact, I found out that there is a whole branch of secular psychology built around this area. It's like a whole field of psychology. I even read the term wrongologist. It's like all, all they do is spend their time studying the fact that human beings have a tendency to avoid admitting when we're wrong. And they've built all these theories around it and all this research. They found out that we often place, we often try to place the responsibilities for our wrongs on other people or circumstances, but not on ourselves. In an effort to maintain a certain self-image, we find ways to tell ourselves that was actually, that was not my fault. This is our tendency. One example that kept coming up in the articles I read was this expression that we often hear on the news by a high official. It goes like this. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. Right? We hear that sometimes. And, but we do the same thing. How did that get broken? Mistakes were made. Right? It's, it's just less obvious when we do it. And this comes as no surprise because this is exactly what we see all the way back in the Garden of Eden when the very first sin was committed. We hear, it's not my fault. It was the woman. The one that you gave me, God. It's not my fault. It was the serpent. This has always been the case. There has always been a tendency to not own up to our wrongs, our sins. I don't want to downplay it. It's a hard thing to do. But our passage today helps us get past that tendency to break through it by the power of God's Spirit. Psalm 32 teaches us that bringing our sin before the Lord is not, it's not only one of our deepest needs in all of life, it's also one of our deepest joys in all of life. So let's turn there, if you haven't already, and begin walking through Psalm 32. This psalm can be divided into two main parts. The first is a personal example. And the second is a public exhortation. The first part is found in verses 1 through 5. And we will begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Let's read. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This psalm starts out by repeating the word blessed. 
Most of us are familiar with this word. It, it often comes after a sneeze. It often comes when we say goodbye. It, it often comes on the majority of Christian greeting cards. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be blessed? It means this is a person who experiences true joy. Joy in their inmost being. So who is it that experiences true joy? Verse 1 literally reads, Blessed is the forgiven one. The one who experiences true joy is the forgiven one. And I think this is telling because we often think of blessing in terms of non-ultimate things like I'm blessed with finances or blessed with a car or blessed with good health or I'm feeling blessed because the situation turned out for me or our Facebook status is feeling blessed because Bang Bang is offering their rhubarb pie it's And all these things might be good to a certain extent, but they don't ultimately matter. Far beyond these things, we learn here that to be blessed in the truest sense is to be a forgiven one. And that means that even when these so-called blessings are more of a struggle, like finances and health and things not turning out our way, during the seasons of life when when it's plain hard, The forgiven can still thank God and say, I am blessed. I am truly blessed. Blessed is a forgiven one. Only what is this person forgiven of? Three words are used in these two verses. In the original language of the Old Testament, if you really wanted to highlight something, you would repeat it. You know, there wasn't like bold letters or all caps or italics or underlines. You would repeat what you wanted to highlight. If you said something twice, it would emphasize it. But if you said something three times, it would communicate the idea of fullness. Like this is the whole deal. This is as big as it gets. For example, God is described as Holy, holy, holy. In other words, His holiness is perfect. It's full. It's complete. And here we see three words for sin. Each one giving a different shade of meaning or adding a new dimension. And it's communicating that this is sin to the fullest. The first word is transgression meaning rebelling against God. It says to God, I am independent of you. You do not rule my life. The second word is sin, meaning leaving from God's path, stepping away from it purposefully or not. And iniquity means doing what is wrong because you actually want to do what is wrong. The desire is also there. And when we pull this all together, what we see is that it covers all the ground for sin. The attitude of independence, the failure to do what is right, the desire to do what is wrong. There's nothing that we could do that wouldn't fall under one of these categories. And that's exactly the point. Sin, in all its many forms, and in all of its entirety, can be forgiven. Only what does it mean to be forgiven? Once again, there's a series of three words. The first word, forgiven, literally means lifted. It's used in Psalm 24 
for someone who is lifting up their head. It's lifted or carried away. It's like, a, it's like a weight lifted from you. The second word is covered. This is the same word used elsewhere for atonement. It's like a stain that's permanently hidden. It's no longer seen and never will be. And the third word is the Lord not counting it. This is from the world of record keeping. It means that our sins are not marked against us. There's no tally. God treats us as if there is no record of them. And when you put this all together, what it communicates is absolute, total forgiveness. When God forgives sin, it is not a weight. It is not a stain. It is not a record. It is entirely gone. Fully and forever. We are liberated, cleansed. And made right in God's eyes instantly. Three words for sin. Three words for forgiveness. Complete sin is met with complete forgiveness. And what that tells us is that we will never sin more than God can forgive. No matter how great, no matter how much, our sin will never outmatch God's forgiveness. Blessed is the forgiven one. Blessed is the one who takes hold of this truth. And that's exactly what we see in the next verses of this first part, verses 3 through 5. These are a testimony of one person who took hold of this truth, and that person was David. Some people think that the background here is David's sin with Bathsheba, and that while that might defi- that could be a fit... There's nothing here that mentions it explicitly. So it's best to take it more generally, because after all, David did sin more than once. And so this is his testimony, his personal example of what happens. So we read, starting in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. David starts off by describing what it was like when he kept his sin to himself. When he kept silence. It sends his his bones wasted away, and he was groaning all day long. He was brokenhearted. This is a picture of feeling lack of inner vitality and peace. It's figurative language for what was going on at the deep level of his soul, but there's no doubt that he probably felt the weight of it physically as well. He goes on, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Everywhere he goes... He experiences the hand of God on his shoulders like a weight constantly hovering over him that he can't escape. It's an unrelenting awareness of his sin and his need to turn. And it says, his strength, or I love this in the original language, literally, his life juices are dried up as by the heat of the summer. As a new homeowner... I made a classic error. I neglected to water the lawn for the past two weeks. And so the grass is dry and withered. And I don't think there's really any hope for it. It's like all like scratchy on your toes. 
And that's how David feels right now. He feels dry and withered. His inner turmoil, his disrupted communion with God has made his soul weary and prickly. This is all a vivid picture of conviction. This is conviction of sin deep within the soul. This is intense, right? This is not at all a pleasant experience for David. But I want you to know this is an act of God's love for David. It reminds me of a time when my brother and I were driving home from college, and he's actually here today. I did not know he'd be coming. So my brother Jonathan and I, we were driving home from college. We had just gotten done with finals. And so we were totally sleep-deprived. But that's okay, because we stopped at a gas station and got some Mountain Dew, popped in our favorite CD, and headed on our way. Mountain Dew, music, foolproof. It was my turn to drive first. We drove for a while, but after a lull in the conversation, I looked over and my brother was out cold, like, like head back, open mouth, sleeping. So I looked for the Mountain Dew in desperation, but it had slipped underneath the wheel well between his feet. So I reached like this, but it was literally like that Michelangelo da Vinci picture, and I was just inches away couldn't get it. But I still had the music. The problem was, the last song on the album had this 10-minute instrumental part of like soft classical guitar music that repeated the same four notes over and over and over. Slowly my eyes began to close. The next thing I know, the car was shaking, and there was this loud sound like thunder. My brother screamed, I screamed, and I pulled the car back onto the road. You see, I was veering off the road, but I had hit the rumble strips. I thank God for the rumble strips. They kept me from veering off course too far, heading towards a world of disaster that would not only take me down, but those with me. Their whole purpose is to be an unpleasant experience. They shook me. They got my attention. But they kept me on the road. And for that, they are a gift for which to be grateful in the same way, conviction is an unpleasant experience. It shakes us. It gets our attention. It wakes us up. But that's exactly what we need because it lets us know when we have veered off course. It keeps us on the road. And I thank God for that. Conviction is a gift of God's love for us. Conviction from God led David to change his course. To get back on the road, it led him to turn. And in verse 5, we once again see a series of three. It says, he acknowledged his sin. He owned his sin before God. He named it and called it what it was. He didn't dodge it, duck it, or downplay it. He doesn't self-justify, rationalize, or minimize. 
he acknowledged his sin. Second, he did not cover it. And this is a play on words, because you'll notice back in verse 1, it said that God covers sin. So the effect is, God covers what we uncover. Thus, our sin will either be covered by us or covered by God. The choice is ours. We can either have false fig leaves or full forgiveness. Third, it says he confessed it. He shared it openly and honestly. And this probably also refers not to just sharing it with God, but also with others. That's open confession. Three words. This is full confession. This is not just empty words that we say and keep living exactly how we were living. It comes from a heart with a desire for God to keep making us new. And how does God respond? The word you is emphasized. And you, you forgave me for the iniquity of my sin. The forgiveness is total and immediate. Have you ever lost something extremely important? Like your boss lets you borrow his car and there was one set of the keys and you parked it illegally on the road and all of a sudden you can't find the keys. It's like it consumes your thoughts. It's all you can think about until you find it, right? You can't rest. You go back to the spot where you think you left it and the whole time you're like, please be there, please be there, please be there. And then you find it laying in the grass. And all of a sudden, it's like this weight is lifted. You might not have even realized how weighed down you were until that moment when it was lifted. That's the picture once again behind this word of forgiveness. The weight of sin is lifted. It's like you've been walking around with a big bag of rocks. And when you finally put it down, you feel free. It's like that sensation of almost floating. It's like Ebenezer Scrooge exclaimed after he had been given a second chance, I'm as light as a feather. The weight is lifted. David cannot keep this to himself. He moves to the second part of the psalm in verses 6 through 11. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must, which must be curved with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In this part, in this last part, David moves from personal example to public exhortation. In other words, he uses his testimony as a lesson for others to learn from. He wants them to share what he has experienced. So he says, therefore, 
Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David is saying, don't put this off. But what does it mean to offer to God prayer when he may be found? I believe that there are two doors that are closing. The first is the door of time. When our time comes to a close, it will be, it will be too late. And the problem is that nobody knows when that door will close. And while this is always a reality, I think this verse is more referring to the door of our hearts. It's about our openness. If we keep resisting God's call to turn, the openness of our hearts can slowly close like a door. We can get so used to the rumble strips that they no longer wake us up. Please don't take this as meaning that anyone is too far gone. There is no one outside of God's reach. But it is a warning that when we keep resisting God, it becomes easier and easier to ignore Him. The more we say no, it becomes easier to say no, and therefore harder to say yes. So David is saying, don't put this off. But then David gives a positive reason for not putting it off. Because receiving forgiveness is like dwelling in perfect security. He says, it's like a rush of great waters that cannot reach you. In other words, you don't have to be gripped by fear. You have already been rescued. But where does this security come from? David makes clear in verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God gives us the security of forgiveness, a security that no one else can give us. When we hold on to our sin, it's like we're out on our own, running for our lives with with nowhere to go. But when we find God, we, we find our hiding place. We rest because He preserves us and shelters us. And I love that imagery in the last part of verse 7. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Imagine being all alone, out in the open. And in front of you, there is an enemy army rushing at you. You hear their battle cry getting louder and louder. But all of a sudden, from behind you, you are engulfed in shouts of deliverance. So loud that it drowns everything else out. Your rescue has come. The enemy is pushed back. And that's the imagery here. His shouts of deliverance drown out the attacks of the enemy. Someone has come to rescue you. Rest in the deliverance that He alone can give. Rest in the security of forgiveness. And did you notice something about verse 7? Three words. You hide me, you preserve me, and you surround me. This is perfect security. There's no greater security than this. But it's possible to hear this and become overwhelmed. It's possible to think, yes, I want that security. I, I want that forgiveness, but, but I, I don't know what to do to get it. I, and I don't know what to do to go from there, how to live any differently. This is always how I've lived. And that's real. 
Whether you've never been a Christian or you have been for 50 years, it's easy to get set in our ways. And so God's voice, God's voice comes through directly in verse 8 and says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. If you truly want forgiveness, if you truly want to turn to God and live differently, He does not say, eh, you can figure it out on your own. No, if that's your desire, do not think for a second that you will be alone. There's no magic formula, just a willing heart turned to God, and He Himself will guide us. Notice three words in verse 8. Instruct, teach, and counsel. This is perfect guidance. You can count on it. But at the same time, David makes clear that while God will guide us, it doesn't mean that this is all easy. Bringing our sin before the Lord is not cheap. It's not like taking a gummy vitamin and moving on. It takes something hard. It takes humbling ourselves. And that's the imagery of verse 9. In order for a horse or a mule to be tame, they have to yield their will. And the same is true for us. Only we will find that His will is better than our own. And it is better to be near Him than anything else. And we will keep following Him, not because we have to, but because we want to. And the whole psalm wraps up on the same note that it began. Joy. Verse 10 sets up a contrast. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And David is not just throwing this out there. He knew this from experience. This is from his own testimony, his personal example to us. When he was holding on to his own sin, he was not living a joyous life. But then he found that blessed are the forgiven. Steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. And then David brings it home. He calls on the forgiven to respond by worshiping God with joy. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. These are commands, and we can't miss that there are three of them. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. This is full joy. And when you put together all the expressions of fullness we have seen in this psalm, all the series of three, it wraps it all together. All-out forgiveness of all-out sin, which is all-out confessed, brings all-out security and all-out guidance and leads to what? All-out joyful praise to God. So as I invite the band to come forward... I think this psalm leads to two final points of application. The first is a call to bring our sin before the Lord. This psalm makes clear that full forgiveness is found in God. And we have to remember that David only saw a shadow. He didn't know how it would be fully worked out. This psalm points forward to the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes this full forgiveness possible. God could not simply forgive sin and still maintain His perfect justice. The penalty had to be paid. 
But the good news is that he paid it himself. Jesus paid the penalty for sin fully at the cross. He completely paid the debt of all those who hoped in God's mercy in times past, like David and all those who trust in him now. And not only is our record clear, he gave his record to us. So that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfection. There is full forgiveness for all who trust in Jesus. We are at once liberated, cleansed, and made perfectly right in God's eyes forever. If you are sensing God's call to bring your sin before the Lord and trust in Christ for forgiveness, I want to make space for you to do that. And this is also for those who have been walking for God with a while, but somehow have veered off the path. And it's not that you need to trust in Christ all over again, but to take hold of the forgiveness that's already given to you and get back on the path and follow Him. So during these next few minutes, I want to encourage you to bring it all before the Lord. Openly and honestly. And this is something that you can do with God alone. But if it's possible, at all possible, it's better to pray with someone else. We are a community, a family, and the prayers of others remind us the truth of the gospel, that we are forgiven and that God empowers us to go forward. So you're welcome to pray with one of the prayer counselors. The prayer counselors will come up here. And you're also welcome to find someone around you who you trust. And I want you to know that no one will be surprised that you are praying about sin. No one is going to be like, wait, he sins or she sins. We all stand on equal grounds here. We all need forgiveness. And the second application is a call to renew our joy in God's forgiveness. The psalm ends with the expression, shout for joy. It's a picture of being so thrilled by something that you can't contain yourself. Charles Spurgeon says, it's like someone finding a great treasure. It's what we do when our team wins a point and they might not even win the game. But for some of us, we've heard so much about forgiveness. It's like the air that we breathe as Christians that we might begin to take it for granted. It might, it might become old news to us. One time Jesus was having dinner with a group of Pharisees. And this woman came up and broke this big, costly jar of perfume and started washing his feet and weeping and washing his feet with her tears. And the Pharisees sneered at her. And questioned what was happening. And, and Jesus, in essence, said, If you only realized the greatness of forgiveness, you would be doing the same yourselves. We have to remember the greatness of forgiveness. How much we've been truly forgiven. This is a call to fresh joy at the wonder of forgiveness. Like the woman who washed Jesus' feet, extra extravagant devotion, not only in our songs, but in the worship of our lives. I'll read the last verse of this psalm one more time. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, 
all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for...